0: Uh, Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be here. Um, If you have a Bible or if you have a phone that has an app or a device of some sort that has an app, maybe you'd like to turn to 1 Samuel 16. It'd be really useful if you had that open in front of you um, as we look at the passage, 1 Samuel 16. Um, Let me just say I'm very excited. I know that I'm an Englishman, a button-down Englishman at that. And so this is me being excited. But let me just say, uh, I am delighted at what you're doing as a church, where you're reading through large sections of God's words uh, in the Immerse program. Uh, I just think that's wonderful. I'm a Bible teacher. Nothing warms my heart more than people reading the Bible, and Christians particularly reading the Bible. And let me just say that I feel like the Old Testament is so neglected in our churches and it's causing problems. Um, So let me just commend you as a church for what you're doing. I think it's wonderful. 1 Samuel 16, let's pray, let's ask the Lord to to help us. Heavenly Father, we Uh, Come into your presence in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit, we're delighted that we can be together, but we're so thankful that you're here with us. And Lord, we pray that you would take your word and that you would speak to us and help us to understand all that we're reading to the honor and glory of your son in Jesus name we pray amen okay if we can have the uh, the powerpoint up and then the great and then the next slide thank you the the course of history can turn on seemingly unimportant events Take, for example, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand on the 28th of June, 1914, which is widely believed to be the event that led to the beginning of World War I. That assassination wouldn't have happened if Ferdinand's driver hadn't accidentally taken the wrong route home stopping the car in front of one of the men who'd been trying to get close to Ferdinand to kill him. As the driver tried to turn the car around in the road, 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip pulled out a gun and shot the Archduke and his wife dead. This single event led to a chain of events that resulted in World War I where 16 million people were killed and 20 million people were wounded. The course of history can turn on seemingly unimportant events even a driver taking the wrong road home. And the same I think can be said for 1 Samuel chapter 16. Who could have predicted the impact of the visit of an elderly man with a cow to the insignificant town of Bethlehem in a small country in the ancient Near East that's recorded here. Who would have guessed that God was sending Samuel to anoint arguably the greatest king of Israel? Who, who would have guessed that one of David's descendants would be the greatest of all kings, not just the king of Israel, but the king of God's eternal kingdom, God himself come to the rescue. Who could have imagined one seemingly unimportant visit like this would start a chain of events that would affect the whole world? Even the people sitting here in this church today some 3,000 years later. The course of history can turn on seemingly unimportant events. And we're going to look at one such event this morning from 1 Samuel 16. Now, of course, we need to be clear about the fact that history is in God's hands. Whether we're thinking about secular history, such as the events that led up to World War I, or the biblical history of the life of King David that led to the coming of Jesus. In fact, God's sovereignty is seen here even in the opening verses. I don't know whether you noticed it when it was being read for us, but it is God, not Samuel or anyone else, who chooses the new king for Israel. It's God, not Samuel, who decides that the time has come for this king to be anointed. It's it's God who sends Samuel to Bethlehem. This story of an elderly man visiting a small town with a cow, it doesn't read like a Hollywood blockbuster, does it? But this seemingly unimportant event was to have global consequences. There's so much more here than meets the eye at first glance, both in the story and in the shepherd boy who becomes its main character. Well, let's get into the story. It, It all starts with God telling Samuel about the new king in Bethlehem in verses 1 to 3. The new king in Bethlehem. Let me read verse 1 again. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Now let's remind ourselves of the story up to this point. It's about 1000 B.C., And it was the end of an old era and the beginning of a new one for Israel. The the judges who had led the people up to this point, of which Samuel was the last, were replaced by kings, of which Saul was the first. And uh, the request for a king had come from the people themselves they were being terrorized by a particularly fierce group of people who had settled in their area who were known as the Philistines. The Philistines had the the latest weapons made from iron, and Israel lived in constant fear of their attacks. And so the people asked Samuel, the current judge of Israel, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, for a king. Now, At one level, it was a perfectly reasonable request. Samuel was old and his sons, who were meant to become the next judges, were corrupt. And there was no sign of anyone else on the horizon to replace Samuel as the new leader of Israel. But actually, this request for a king was a rejection of Samuel's leadership And more fundamentally, it was a rejection of God as king. As the people come and ask for a king, Samuel and God himself are insulted by the request. Instead of relying on God to protect them, the, the people wanted a human king to protect them, like the pagan nations around them. And so Saul is appointed as the first king of Israel, and he certainly looks the part. He's described as tall and handsome, and he started well, it seems. He, he, he does a good job in protecting Israel from the nations around them. But soon it seems power goes to his head. He becomes arrogant. He becomes disobedient to God's commands. And in the end, Samuel tells him that God has rejected him as king. God would look for another man to reign on Israel's throne, a man after his own heart. Chapter 13, verse 14. And that's what chapter 16 is all about. God tells Samuel to stop mourning for Saul and to start out for Bethlehem. There was a new king to be anointed there, one of the sons of Jesse. But Samuel's worried, verse 2. It was a dangerous business to go around anointing new kings when the last one was alive and well and reigning on the throne. People lost their lives for less. So faithfulness to God in this situation for Samuel meant dicing with death. He's, He's rightly fearful about what Saul might do if he found out. So Samuel needed a reason to be in the small town of Bethlehem, which wouldn't arouse Saul's suspicion. And that's what God gives him in verses 2 to 3. He's to call a celebration, a uh, a sacrifice to God at Bethlehem, followed by a sit-down meal. God tells Samuel to, take a heifer for sacrifice, invite Jesse and his family along to the party, and then anoint God's chosen one. It was a covert operation. But before we move on, notice that Samuel is only given partial information here. I mean, God could have told him exactly who the new king would be from the very beginning. But Samuel is only told that it would be one of Jesse's sons. He doesn't know which one. He's still partly in the dark. But notice that God gives him his guidance on the move. It's only as he steps out in faith and obedience that he's able to see the fuller picture. And I think the same is often true for us as Christians, God's guidance frequently comes to us on the move. It's only as we step out in faith and obedience that we're, we're able to see the fuller picture. We, we'd love to know what's next, wouldn't we? What job does God want us to do? Where does he want us to live? How will we manage to pay our bills? Who should we marry? We'd love to know the whole story, wouldn't we? But God rarely shows us the whole journey. Rather, he he shows us the next step and calls us to trust him for every step of the journey. The New Testament calls us as Christians to live by faith and not by sight. Notice here then that Samuel is prepared to trust God even when the future is unclear. Which brings us to the second section of the story. The visiting VIP, verses 4 to 5. The visiting VIP. Next slide, please. Now, I I think it's uh, fair to say that the elders of the town were unnerved by this elderly dignitary arriving in their town with his cow. Uh, We're told here that the the town leaders were trembling as they met him and asked rather suspiciously, "Do, do you come in peace? Now it really wasn't surprising Just a little while before this, Samuel had given his retirement speech to the people of Israel. And at the end of that speech, he had told them that they had done an evil thing by asking for a king. And to prove it, Samuel had called upon God to send thunder and rain during the time of the wheat harvest. So around about May, June time. Which was the wrong time of year for thunderstorms there. But that's what happened. God sends thunder and lightning and rain. And one Samuel chapter 12 verse 18 tells us that as a result, all the people were terrified of the Lord and of Samuel. So you, you've got to understand, this is a nervous moment for the elders of Bethlehem as Samuel turns up on their doorstep. Was he going to call down God's judgment upon the people of Bethlehem? Uh, Was he there to pronounce God's judgment upon them in the same way as he had done with Saul? No doubt they they knew already about the, the public falling out between Saul and Samuel. His arrival in Bethlehem could mean real trouble for the people there. Why was he there? Well, Samuel reassures them, doesn't he, that he's there on a peaceful mission. He's come to Bethlehem to sacrifice to the Lord, a sacrifice that the town elders were invited to, as were Jesse and his sons. And it's at this sacrifice that God teaches Samuel an important lesson. Next slide, please. And the lesson is this. The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. In these verses, we're we're privy to Samuel's private thoughts and the guidance of God. As the, the people come together for the sacrifice and Samuel meets Jesse's family, he's immediately impressed by the oldest son, Eliab. Samuel takes one look at him and thinks to himself, this is the one, verse 6. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Now, I guess he looked pretty impressive. Maybe he looked a bit like Saul, who also was impressive to look at, remember. But God says... No, verse 7, don't, don't look, sorry, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel had been deceived by Eliab's outward appearance, That was the problem with Saul. He looked like everything you could want from a king, but his heart wasn't right. And choosing a man after his own heart was the most important qualification for God. Eliab fails God's heart test, as does Abinadab, verse 8, and Shimea, verse 9, and the other four sons of Jesse, verse 10. Now according to Dell Ralph Davis who knows 1 and 2 Samuel better than I ever will verse 7 isn't just the take home message for this story it's actually the take home message for the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel God doesn't judge people by their outward appearance he judges them by their hearts now it's a simple lesson, isn't it? But one that we're surprisingly slow to learn. We, we we must understand that it is possible to look godly but not be godly. It's possible to call yourself a Christian but not be a Christian. It's even possible to be a Christian minister but not have a personal relationship with Jesus. We're so easily wowed by appearances, aren't we? Too often we choose style over substance. So we we watch that video online, or we, we go to that conference, and everything is so polished, and it's so exciting, and it's so dynamic, And we become devoted followers of that Christian personality. We drink in everything they tell us. And we forget to ask is it biblical? Is it from God? Is it true? Is it helpful? Jesus warned us about wolves in sheep's clothing we're so easily fooled by appearances aren't we but notice that god doesn't have that problem he sees our hearts he sees straight through the hypocrisy and the pretense hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 states that nothing in all creation is hidden from god You see, God calls his people to serve him from the heart. That's what he sees. That's the measure by which he judges our lives. We can fool everyone else, but God reads our hearts. Well, lastly, last slide. We find out here about the Lord's anointed in verses 11 to 13. The Lord's anointed. Notice that Samuel is perplexed by this turn of events. Seven sons of Jesse have come to the feast. Seven sons have been rejected. God had said, verse 1, that he'd chosen one of Jesse's sons, but... Samuel's repeatedly been told in verses 8 and 9 and 10 that these sons hadn't been chosen. How could both of those messages from God be true? Well, there could really only be one answer. There must be another son who hadn't been invited to the feast. He asked Jesse if there are any more sons, verse 11. And he's told that the youngest is still looking after the sheep. Samuel asks that they call him to come. And the the urgency of this request is emphasized by the fact that no one can start to eat until the shepherd boy, who no one thought to invite, arrives. The town elders, Jesse and his sons, Samuel himself, that they're all left waiting for the duration of time that it takes for the messenger to be sent, for the youngest son to arrive back fresh from the field, and then to be brought to the waiting group. Now, considering the fact that verse seven is all about God not judging people by their outward appearance, it's a little surprising that the shepherd boy is described in verse 12 by his outward appearance. We're told he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Clearly, this boy wasn't ugly, which helps us to realize, I think, that verse seven can't mean that God's only interested in short, ugly people for leadership. Rather, the point that's being made is that it's his heart, not his looks, that makes him, make him suitable to become the king of Israel. And God tells Samuel that this is the one. He's the one who's to be anointed as king. And notice that for the first time in this story, David is named, verse 13. The shepherd boy is anointed in front of the rejected candidates, his brothers. And we're told that the spirit of God came upon him powerfully from that day onwards. God not only chose David to be king, he also equipped him for the task by empowering him by his spirit. Now whether David or anyone else knew that he was being anointed as the new king of Israel, isn't made plain here. In fact, we're told nothing about the reaction of Jesse, the town elders, or David's brothers to this surprise turn of events. We're not even told about the feast that must have followed, which was apparently their reason for being there. Although I think we can be fairly confident about the fate of the cow. The story simply ends with the words, then Samuel returned to Ramah. In other words, and then he went home. The implication being that his mission was accomplished. Now as we close, let's think about where this passage points. We we could legitimately talk about God filling us as Christians with his Holy Spirit, for his service. But actually, I, I don't think this passage is primarily about us at all. It's about the Spirit-filled Christ. This anointed one prepares us for the anointed one. That's what the word Christ or Messiah means, the anointed one. David prepares us for Jesus. You know, when we talk about the new king in Bethlehem, we're not normally thinking about David, are we? We're normally thinking about Jesus. You see, these two kings are linked in God's purposes. Later in the Old Testament, the prophet Micah would prophesy about another king, like David, but greater than David, who would come from Bethlehem. Isaiah and Jeremiah would prophesy about one of David's descendants who would perfectly reign on David's throne. And there can be no doubt that when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers consider Jesus to be David's greater son, the Christ, the anointed one, God's chosen one. You see, it's, it's not ultimately David who's a man after God's heart. It's Jesus. Who's the one chosen by God but rejected by people? In 1 Samuel 16, it's David. But in 1 Peter 2 verse 7, it's Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. We nailed him to a cross. But God has exalted him to the highest place. Who's the one upon whom the Spirit of God rests in power as the Lord's anointed? Well, to some extent, it was David. But ultimately, it's Jesus who's sent out by God, full of the Holy Spirit, to do his will. You see, this This story from 1 Samuel 16 about an elderly man taking his cow to an obscure town in Israel it it may all seem so unimportant to us today but actually it heralds the arrival of Jesus God's spirit filled anointed king the one who Reigns over God's eternal kingdom, the one who holds your life and my life in his hands. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the echoes of your son that we find here in the life of David we thank you for your perfect reign Lord Jesus we thank you that we are your people and we willingly bow the knee before you Lord we thank you that you reign and rule over all Lord Help us this day, this week, to live under your Lordship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.